beginning in verse 26, Luke 1, 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I'll pray. Lord, it's this time of year we, we truly, especially give thanks to you for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus, for sending him into this world out of love for us having so loved this world that you gave your only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him might have eternal life. We thank you, God, for this great, immeasurable, incomprehensible gift that you've given. And I pray that our hearts would be open to you and that we would understand, God, by your Spirit's work, your great love for us, and that we would respond to you in faith, in love, and obedience. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this is a wonderful time of year, but one of my grandsons this morning started out at the breakfast table saying, this is a sad day. And I thought, what could be sad about today? So I said, why? Why would you say today is a sad day? He says, because we have to go home today. Oh, my. So I don't know who, maybe his parents are teaching him the right things to say to the grandparents so that they will leave the entire inheritance, whatever it is, to that child. (laughs) Sorry, kids, we're just going to skip you all and, you know. um, But it is a wonderful time of year. And God could not have given us more than what he's given us with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we all love um, grand entrances. I think we must because we see them all the time. We're experts at grand entrances. Every wedding, there's a grand entrance when the bride comes into the room. Um, Apparently, with every um, boxing match, there's a grand entrance where the contestants come in and, you know, they've got, you know, their whole entourage with them and everything. Um, Every time we have a president inaugurated. It's always a grand affair. We love that kind of thing. God, apparently, not so much, at least not with the birth of his son. Now, when Jesus comes back again, that's going to be the grand entrance that tops them all. 
But the first time he came, it couldn't have been more understated. No one would have expected it to be this way. I think when, you know, God used Elijah to bring down fire from heaven, that was pretty spectacular. When God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, that was pretty spectacular. Apparently when Superman came to the earth, (laughs) it was a lot like that. You know, a spaceship that looked like a ball of fire coming into the earth, as the story goes, we know is just make-believe. But Superman, you know, in our secular society is a picture of a savior coming into this world in a ball of fire on a spaceship, absolutely contrary to how Jesus, the true Savior, came into this world. It is so um, understated, really. Um, It's amazing. And I want to look at the details of what I just read here, but really it begins even before Luke 1 and and, and Gabriel, the angel, coming and making the announcement to Mary. The story begins long before that with a genealogy. And there are only two of the four Gospels, two genealogies of Jesus, Matthew and Luke. Mark and John skip the genealogies of Christ. And we believe it's because Matthew focuses on Jesus as being king. So if he's king, a genealogy is very, very important. And Luke focuses on him being a man. And so with men, we often are interested in what their family tree is. But with Mark, he's a common servant. Nobody cares what the genealogy of a servant is. And with John, he's God. God doesn't have a genealogy. So it's Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew and Luke that have a genealogy of Jesus. Now we would expect that Mark, I'm sorry, I keep saying Mark, that Matthew would be the really the key genealogy. If you go to Matthew chapter 1, then we're going to come back to Luke 1. We would expect that that of the two genealogies, this is the one that matters the most because Matthew is about Jesus as king. That's the theme of Matthew. Jesus is king. And so um, Matthew is the only uh, only one of the four gospels that was written particularly, almost exclusively to the Jewish people. And so as a Jew, if Jesus is making claim to be king, then you certainly want to know what his genealogy was and whether he is a rightful claimant to the throne. And so this genealogy in Matthew is very important. It's not surprising that it begins with a genealogy because this was of paramount importance to the Jewish people. But the thing is, this is the genealogy of Joseph. And Joseph is not the father of Jesus. So the Jews would have wanted to know what is the genealogy of the father. And so Matthew satisfies that. He says, well, I know that's what you want. And being a good Jew, writing to good Jews, I will let you know what the genealogy of Joseph is. But Joseph is not the father. And so the Matthew genealogy will not establish Jesus' right to reign because Joseph was not his father. There is not a single time in Scripture that Joseph is called the father of Jesus. He's never even called the adoptive father of Jesus. In fact, I may be missing someplace, and you can correct me, but I don't know of anybody that was adopted in the Old Testament among the Jews with the possible exception of Esther and her uncle Mordecai. 
And even that, there's no indication that that was a legal adoption. It's just more he took care of her because the parents were out of the picture. Joseph is never called either the adoptive father of Jesus or the physical father. He was neither. So this genealogy, then, because it is, it is the genealogy of Joseph and cannot establish the right of Jesus to reign since Jesus was not of the seed of Joseph. That means that Matthew could have some liberties, take some liberties with this genealogy. And as you read through it, one thing that just jumps out is that it has women mentioned in it. No good Jewish genealogy ever contained the name of a woman, ever. And so if you wanted to trace the lineage of a woman, you did it through her husband. That's what Luke is going to do. But this is clearly the, the, the genealogy of Joseph, not of Mary. And because it, it does not establish that Jesus has the right to rule. Now, most commentaries will tell you that it does. But on this matter, I'm really leaning on Arnold Frutenbaum, and he has the, the, the most insightful um, analysis of this of anybody I've read. And he just keeps, keeps it very simple. And he says, the scripture says, going back to Genesis chapter 3, that, the, that this one who would be born, the Savior that would come, would be of the seed of the woman. And, and that is exactly what happened. Jesus was not the seed of Joseph. He is the seed of Mary. And so Joseph's genealogy does not establish his right to rule. It's Mary's that does. He was... Joseph was a descendant of David, but even Joseph would not have been able to rule. So, and that's because as you read through this genealogy, you come down to um, verse 11, and it says, And to Josiah was born Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. The significance of Jeconiah is that he was cursed of God, and God said very, very clearly, that none of his seed would ever sit on the throne of David. None. So up to that point, any of of the descendants of David through Solomon could have sat on the throne. But when Jeconiah messed up like he did, God said, we're done here. And so the Messiah could no longer come through the line that connected to Jeconiah. So this, was, this genealogy does not establish the right of Jesus to rule. Jeconiah is in it, and that would have disqualified Jesus from being able to rule had he actually been the seed of Joseph. But he wasn't. Not only are there women mentioned, not only is Jeconiah mentioned, but there are number, a number of names that are omitted. And those things would not, again, that would not have happened in a legitimate um, genealogy, one that you are using to establish a person's right to rule. You would never omit names. Women are included. That would have never happened. Names are omitted. That would have never happened. And Jeconiah is mentioned, and that means Jesus could not rule if he was establishing it based upon that line of descent. Of the four women, Tamar is first, and then Rahab, and then Ruth, and then her who was the mother of Solomon, not even given her name. Um, 
And it's an interesting thing looking at these individuals because they were not perfect. Ruth was, was amazing, um, but they were all um, Gentiles. None of the four were Jewish women. All four were Gentiles. Obviously, Matthew is trying to make a point here that Jesus is not just the Savior of the Jews, but He's the Savior of Gentiles as well. I appreciated that one commentary on Stanley Toussaint, he wrote, and he says, even from the very first line of Matthew, where it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and he says he reverses the natural order there, and then he turns around and he starts talking about Abraham first, but in that very first verse, the son of David, that's the emphasis, Jesus is given to the Jew. Son of Abraham... Abraham is more than just the one who brought blessing to the Jewish people, but God said all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. And so Matthew, from the very beginning, is saying, yes, he is the king of the Jews. He has been given to the Jewish people. He is the son of David, but he is also the son of Abraham, and Abraham was the one who would be through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. One writer says, as you look at these four women that are mentioned, um, one, we have a picture, Rahab, the sinner, I'm sorry, Tamar, the sinner, and then um, of Rahab, of salvation, of Ruth, of the grace of God, and, and then um, her, speaking of Bathsheba, of the restoration that God brings. Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba, all guilty of sexual immorality, and yet God has graciously worked through their lives to bring about um, this, this um, direct line to Joseph, um, the supposed father, but we know not actual father of Jesus. It's an amazing genealogy. It's really one that establishes the grace of God and one that establishes the virgin birth of Jesus and establishes the gift of God. But it was never intended to establish that Jesus has the right to rule. Any Jew reading this would have understood that's the case. The genealogy that establishes his right to rule is in Luke chapter 3. And you can look there, and I won't go through all the names here, but there's one point that needs to be made that, that we can see that this is the genealogy of Mary and not the genealogy of Joseph. It says in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, And when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being supposedly the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Mathot, and it goes all the way through. What is not clear in our English translation, and it's very clear here in the, in the Greek, is that it says, when it says, the son of Joseph, hopefully your Bible, New American Standard was good to do this, the the, where it says, the son of Joseph, is in italics. It's being supplied. It is not in the Greek. With every other name, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Malchi, the son of Janiah, the article is in front of every single man's name, except for Joseph. And so Arnold Frutenbaum says that's the clue, that a Jew could read this genealogy and know immediately it is not the genealogy of Joseph because the the, the definite article, is not in front of his name. This is the genealogy of Mary. And, and, but you didn't make genealogies of women, so if you wanted to do it of a, of a woman, you would, do, you would mention her husband in place of her 
and leave the definite article off the front of his name. So this is clearly the genealogy of, of Mary and establishes Jesus' right to rule, not through Solomon and Jeconiah, but through David's son, Nathan. What does all that mean? Well, in the words of Francis Schaeffer, and he wrote a book called True Spirituality. It's one of the finest books, I think, that's ever been written on the Christian life. And he points out that the real significance of the incarnation of God becoming man is not the birth. That's just the beginning. And God didn't become a man just so we could say God became a man. But Francis Schaeffer says at that point, it was a much more significant thing than the entrance would lead us to believe. Because the birth itself is so understated, so insignificant. A humble peasant woman who ba- gives birth in a cave and the baby is put in a feed trough. It doesn't get more understated than that. But the real significance is that a naturalistic world, as Francis Schaeffer says, has now been ripped open. And now the supernatural has, been, has invaded the natural. And not just for a moment with a miracle here and there as we see throughout the Old Testament, but for 33 years, God dwelled on this earth. And that means the natural order has been penetrated, has been ripped apart like the ripping of the veil, and it will never be the same again. And from that point on, every person has to make a choice. Will I live as though this is merely a naturalistic world where there is no God, and if there is a God, He is not involved, or will I live knowing that there is a spiritual, supernatural dimension to life? That's the question. And that's the significance of the incarnation. Naturalism has been destroyed. It's still a natural world, but it is not the only world. We know that there is a spiritual dimension. There is a living God. He has, he has in, in, indwelt flesh. He has become man. And now I can no longer live as though this is all there is. There is much more to life than simply a natural world lived apart from God. And that's the great thing of the incarnation. The incarnation is just the beginning. It is not the end. It is not enough. It is for the purpose, the incarnation of God becoming man. It is the purpose, for the purpose of the death, of his death in atonement for sin and resurrection for the newness of life. The central thing is the redemptive death of Jesus Christ. And from, as Francis Schaeffer says, from the very first promise within 24 hours of the fall of man until the very end, this is the message that Christ came to die for our sins and to rise again from the dead. And the incarnation of Christ is what rends the natural world and causes us to have to deal with the reality of a spiritual world. Luke chapter 1. Gabriel appears to Mary and cries out to her in verse 28, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. What a statement. And she is shocked. She's never seen an angel in her life. And when an angel appears, you would think that he would say, You're in trouble. I mean, any person would think that. 
I'm in trouble. Here's an angel. And he says, hail, favored one. The Lord is with you. And she's greatly troubled by this, and she kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And she's going, are you kidding me? The, I am a favored one? The Lord is with me? She doesn't know what to do with that. And you think, what more, what higher statement could God possibly say to any person? You are favored, and I am with you. This was the cry of all our heroes in the Old Testament. Moses, Joshua, David. You can go right through each of these guys. Hezekiah, Josiah. They were all saying, God, I need your favor and I need your presence. By all means, do not forsake me. And now God appears to Mary and says through Gabriel, you are favored and God is with you. The one thing that every person wants to know the favor of God and the presence of God, and she, he's telling her, you have both. And in Christ, as a person places his faith in Jesus Christ and says, I recognize that Jesus is not just another boy, but he is God in the flesh who gave himself for me, that all I have to do is just say thank you and receive the free gift of eternal life. That what God says about Mary through Gabriel is what God says to each one of us. Favored and God is with us. True of every Christian. She was troubled by this because she was humble. She didn't say, well, it's about time. But she was humbled. I wonder if we respond to every hardship in life by saying, why is this happening to me? I wonder how likely it is that we will ever be in the position, like Mary, who will, who will soon say, how can this be? See, what's the, that's the difference. See, the question that we often ask is, why is this happening to me? And Mary is saying, how can this be? Because she's being so blessed. But it's when we, are, we humble ourselves and don't see ourselves as worthy of any good thing, we certainly don't deserve the favor of God, we certainly don't deserve the presence of God, well then God is free to pour out His blessings on us. So Mary is going to say, how can this be? Out of her humility. When we have that kind of Humility, that kind of mindset, I believe that we're then in a position of being able to see the outpouring of God's matchless, abundant, unexplainable, incomprehensible, supernatural grace and love and life. And the angel said to her, verse 30, again, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. What qualified Mary to be the mother of Jesus? Well, she had to be a woman. That goes without saying. See, if all we had was Genesis 3.15, we wouldn't have the full story of what qualified her. 
because for a long time, up until um, Abraham, perhaps you could think that any woman would be qualified to be the mother of Jesus. But then we understand, no, it's more refined than that, more narrow than that. It wasn't just any woman, it had to be a Jewish woman. And then with the line of David and the covenant that God gives to David, that line becomes that possibility that, that of who could be the potential mother of Jesus. It's narrowed further from being any woman to being a Jewish woman and be in the direct line of David. Well, then we know from Isaiah it gets narrowed even further. It needs to be a virgin. So she needs to be a woman, she needs to be Jewish, she needs to be of the line of David, she needs to be a virgin. But I think there's more than that. She needs to be a believer. She needs to be one who has a personal relationship with the living God. She needs to be righteous, moral. And the one thing that maybe we don't think about, but which really is as big a deal or maybe bigger than all the others, she needs to be humble. And that's why God found this woman. She was female, Jewish, of the line of David, a virgin, a believer, righteous, and humble. Because the scripture tells us it is the humble that God exalts. When we look over still in Luke chapter 1, Mary gives her, it's called the Magnificent in the subheading here in my Bible, but it says she's in her, her rejoicing over all that God is doing and will do through her life. She hi highlights this in verse 52. It says, He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and He has exalted those who were humble. God found the right woman. Jewish, the line of David, virgin, a believer, righteous, and perhaps above all else, humble. And God said, this is a woman I can use. And then Gabriel says, verse 31, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. What does Jesus mean? The literal, this is, Jesus is a transliteration from the Hebrew name, which would have been pronounced Yeshua, or even Joshua, because the letters are, the, are identical. So Joshua and Jesus are really the same name, and it literally means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. Think about what that means. I don't know. I mean, you know, people, it, 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 obviously we're calling their children Joshua. And so now the Greek here, transliteration of that is Jesus. But I don't know. I mean, can, I mean, can you imagine naming your child Savior? And that's basically what they did here under the Gabriel's um, direction. God saves. Yahweh is salvation, or to shorten it, Savior. And so every time they looked at that little boy and called his name, they're saying Savior. Every time his, his neighborhood friends played with him, Savior. 
And even when they hung him on a cross, and his enemies said he saved others, let's see if he'll save himself. But it's Savior is his name. You will call him Jesus, Savior, and he will be great. And again, another understatement. How great? King of kings, Lord of lords, Revelation 19 says. How great? Given a name above every other name, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, from Philippians 2. He mentions four aspects of his greatness, and all four of these have to do with the Davidic covenant. He will be great, and now four things. He will be called, first, the Son of the Most High. And second, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And third, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And fourth, and his kingdom will have no end. I have to tell you, uh, the reason that, that I've wanted to preach on this particular passage, and especially those two verses, is because, like most of us, I've been very, very discouraged about what's been going on politically. And it is, it is I, I stopped watching the news after um, the votes were counted. I have not watched 30 minutes of news since then. I've just been so discouraged. I've read a few headlines, you know, on my apps that I have on my phone. But as far as turning on the news and watching on TV, I just don't want it. Oh, that's me. I've been discouraged. And I, I thank the Lord for these verses. Because it's telling us that our hope is not in an election. It is not in Donald Trump. It is not in any other president. If I were to come in, the, come in this morning and say, hey, I, I just want to be the first to tell you that it's all been overturned and Trump will be in office for another four years, yay, most of us, yay. That is nothing, nothing in comparison to what Gabriel is telling Mary. This is where our hope is to be. This is the one who will rule forever. This is where our hope is. It will never be in kingdoms in presidencies and administrations of this world. Never. He will be called Son of the Most High. Meaning, He is God. Fully God. When the Bible speaks of Son of Man, as I've said many times, it doesn't mean He's less than man. And when the Bible calls Him Son of God, it doesn't mean He's less than God. It means He is a full, representative, carbon copy of everything that God is. He is God. He is man. And this one, Mary's being told, your son will be God. Wow. This is what Eve expected. In fact, Adam and Eve, understanding the promise, the prophecy that God had given, through her seed, the serpent's head will be crushed. That Adam named her Eve, which means mother of the living, or simply life, because he sees through her, life is going to come. The Savior will come. And they thought that would be Cain. Adam didn't get it. Eve didn't get it. That it would be through her seed without the seed of the man. 
And now it's finally being fulfilled. And Mary is the one who is the source of this life. Not as the originator, but as the vehicle through whom God uses to bring life. It's very important to note, there is no place in Scripture, even later on here in the same chapter, where she is called Mother of God. Elizabeth comes close to this in verse 43, where she says, How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? But she's never referred to as the mother of God. She is the mother of Jesus, a boy. She is not the originator of God. God is without origination, without beginning. There's no way she could be the mother of God. She is the mother of the human aspect of Christ. Fully God. Again, the naturalism of this world has been split forever through this birth. David was told that he would have a son who would rule on his throne forever. Four promises that were made to David, and this fulfills one of those four promises. You will have a son who will rule forever. The second promise that Gabriel says, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. This has not yet happened. There is no place, there are 59 references to David in the New Testament, and none of them is Jesus said to be ruling now on the throne of David. He is now sitting at the right hand of his father in heaven. But he is not yet ruling on the throne of David, and he never did during his 33 years on earth. He is coming back to do that. And during the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Christ, he will rule for that entire thousand years on the throne of David. And then after that, there's the great white throne judgment, and there will be the new heaven and the new earth, and Jesus will rule for all of eternity on the throne of David. All of history has been pointing to this ever since God in 2 Samuel 7 gave that covenant to David. It will begin in the millennial reign, and it will extend through all of eternity. The third promise, he says, um, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. This speaks of his dynasty. He's not, he will not just be on the throne of David, but his reign will last forever. It was, this is distinct from the throne, and it speaks of his reign and it speaks that, of, of that, it will, it will, um, that he will rule over Israel and be the only one to ever rule over Israel again without any interruption in his reign. And then finally, and his kingdom will have no end. I think this speaks of two things. It speaks of the, of the kingdom itself will never cease, but it also speaks of the scope of his authority, that it is total and worldwide. Son of the Most High, given the throne of his father David, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This is our hope. Jesus did not come in order to correct the political situation of the world at that time. That day is coming, but we don't live there yet. So, since the day of Christ's birth to the time that we're living in now and until the time of the millennium, 
When we look at Christ and why he has come, we have to see he's come not to reign over this world yet. But he has come to reign in each of our hearts. And every man, woman, boy and girl has the opportunity now to say, to decide who their king will be. To receive him by faith as their savior. And in doing so, be given the gift of eternal life. And that's why Christ is here. And if we're thinking that he is here in order to make our lives better or to correct the political situation of the world, we're going to be gravely disappointed. He can do those things, and many times he does. But that is not the ultimate purpose of why he came. It was to save you and me. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? It's not a question of unbelief. Just a question of, I don't understand, which is amazing. And the way it ought to be, that when God is working in our lives, there ought to be that, kind, that sense that says, I don't understand how this has happened. How can I be this blessed? And that's the way it is with our salvation. If we, if, you know, remember that time, maybe you don't have to look back long, maybe you do, but that moment where, where you placed your faith in Christ and, and there's that sense of, how can this be? I have to be the most blessed person on the earth. God has forgiven me. God has restored me to relationship with him. How can this be? So that's not a question of unbelief. That's not a question of even looking for full explanation. It's just going, this is amazing. And the angel answers and says to her, God's going to work this out. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth, she's also pregnant. She's in her sixth month. Nothing will be impossible for God. And Mary's response, humility, belief, and submission. In what way did she have to submit? Again, quoting from Arnold Frutenbaum, Three great insights here. When she submitted herself and said in verse 38, Behold, the bondservant of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. She realized the Old Testament penalty for being found pregnant while betrothed was to be stoned to death. She had to submit herself to the Lord and trust that God would not let that happen. She, had, she would have recognized that even had she not been stoned to death, she's going to be ostracized, she's going to be labeled, she's going to be, be attacked throughout the rest of her life as being the woman who was pregnant before she was married. In fact, we know that was true. For the rest of her life, and, and, and all through the life of Jesus, Jesus was said, we know who our father is, we don't know who your father is, insinuating that Mary conceived out of wedlock, which she did, but in an immoral way, and that the offspring was not by the activity of God. She had to trust when she submitted to the Lord that God would take care of her, even though the community would be incredibly harsh and condemning. And finally, when she submitted to the Lord, she had to trust God with her relationship with Joseph. 
because he was a righteous man. And he knew what he had to do. If, in fact, Mary had conceived out of wedlock, why would he think otherwise? He knew that she would have to be exposed. There's no way out of it. And he was trying to find a way of doing it that would not bring shame. But it was going to be impossible. And so Gabriel appeared to Joseph as well and explained to her, you don't have to take action against Mary because this is indeed the child of God. And she is indeed a virgin. Nothing immoral has happened. And under that word from the Lord, Joseph took her to be his wife and kept her a virgin until after she gave birth to Jesus. She had to submit her entire well-being to the Lord when she said yes to the Lord. Her life was never the same. She will be told later that a sword will pierce your own soul. And apparently the, the tense of the, of the wording there is that it will continue to constantly pierce your soul. She was a woman who lived with great grief, knowing the truth and yet no one believing her except Joseph. But the big thing here, and again, I appreciate um, <clears throat> the thoughts of Francis Schaeffer on this when he talks about Mary and points out that she is such an example of how the Christian life is to be lived. Where Mar Francis Schaeffer wrote and said, The angel has come to Mary and says, In effect, Mary, you are going to give birth to the long-promised Messiah, this was a unique promise and unrepeatable. There is something totally unique here. The birth of the eternal second person of the Trinity into this world. What is her response? The Holy Spirit, we are told, is to cause a, a conception in her womb. It seems to me that she could have made three responses. She could have run away and said, no way, God, this is not going to happen to me. I'm, I don't want any part of this. She didn't do that. She could have said, I now have the promises of God, so I will exert my force, my character, and my energy to bring forth the promised thing. I have the promise. Now I will bring forth a child without a man. But with this response, she never would have had the child. She could not bring forth a child without a man by her own will any more than any other girl could do. But the third thing she could say, and what she did say, it is beautiful. It's wonderful. She says, behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to your word. There is an active passivity here. She took her own body by choice and put it into the hands of God to do the thing that he said he would do. And Jesus was born. She gave herself with her body to God in response to the promise, yes, but not to do it herself. This is a beautiful, exciting, personal expression of a relationship between a finite person and the God she loves. It is an illustration of our own being the bride of Christ. We are in the same situation in that we have these great, thrilling promises. And we are neither to think of ourselves as totally passive, as though we had no part in this, as though God had stopped dealing with us now as men, nor are we to think that we can do it ourselves. If we are to bring forth fruit in the Christian life, or rather if Christ is to bring forth this fruit through us by the agency of the Holy Spirit, there must be a constant act of faith, of thinking. Upon the basis of your promises, I am looking for you to fulfill them, O oh my Jesus Christ. 
bring forth your fruit through me into this world. True spirituality is not achieved in our own energy. It is the power of the crucified, risen, glorified Christ through the agency of the Holy Spirit by faith. That's what makes Mary so remarkable. The response of humility and belief and submission, yes, but she becomes a picture and illustration of how the Christian life is lived. Behold, here I am, Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. It is an active passivity, as he says. In consequence to her faith, a Savior is born. She has great joy, but also great sorrow and pain. The same thing will be true for you and me. When we say yes to Jesus, the joy just begins, but also the pain and sorrow. There's no political, there's no societal change, but spiritually, salvation, hope, and peace are brought to her and to the world. And I'll just wrap it up with this thought. The three aspects of this paragraph, Gabriel comes and says, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. And then he says, Jesus is king. And then she yields in faith and obedience. It really comes down to that, doesn't it? Think about that. God says to us, we are favored, and the Lord is with us, and Jesus is king. Those two truths, we are favored, God is with us, number one, and Jesus is king, secondly. And the only appropriate response is to yield to him in faith and obedience. Behold, the bondservant of the Lord, be it done unto me according to your word. Anything else is living a naturalistic life. I want to live a supernatural a life that is banking every moment of every day on the reality that God is. And he has penetrated this world in the life of his son and that we can live every moment by faith in him who is king. I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you for this matchless, marvelous gift that is so incomprehensible. But I thank you, God, that it demonstrates for us in history. We can put a date to it. We know, God, that you took on flesh and became man. It actually happened in the history of this world. And at that moment, God, we saw that you are the eternal living God who has broken into time and space once and for all that we might know you as God while we live in this world. I thank you that we have not been left to ourselves, that it is not just a naturalistic, anti-God world, that we can know you and walk with you and love you, commune with you, have fellowship with you, all because of your son Jesus who gave himself for us, that as many as would receive him might become children of God. In the same way, the God, that we were born physically and he was born physically, we know that you want us to be born again, that we might know you and walk with you and live in your love and grace for us. And I pray, God, that we would just have our hearts open, as Paul prayed in one of his letters, God, that our hearts would be open to comprehend the love of God in all of its 
glory and expanse. And that we would live in this Christmas season, God, in each day, being gripped by your love. Controlled, Lord, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, by the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. Thank you, God, for the example of Mary, humble, who simply said yes and trusted you, God, to do in her what only you can do. And Lord, we know that this is the same that you would have us to live, in humility, eyes on you, saying yes, and trusting you to accomplish what only you can accomplish. Thank you, God, that we can live in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.